Thanks for listening to the weekend message from Abundant Life Church. Most weeks on the podcast, you'll hear teaching from our lead pastor, Jeremy Jernigan. We have campuses in Oregon and Washington and are committed to giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Find out more about Abundant Life Church at alcpnw.com. Well, hey, Abundant Life Church, I want to welcome you today. We are so glad that you're here, uh, wherever you're joining us, to those at Happy Valley, uh, those in Sandy, those in Vancouver, uh, to those of you who are watching or listening online through a podcast or YouTube channel. Uh, we're so glad that you are here today, and you're, you're in for a treat, because today we have a guest speaker all the way from Florida named Katie Cole. And a little bit about Katie. Uh, for about 16 years, uh, she was on a church staff at a, the executive level. Uh, as they grew from 3,500 people to more than 23,000 people. Uh, She has since gone on to really focus on leadership uh, with business and church leaders. Uh, Most recently, her passion has been uh, really developing female leaders. And as you may know, uh, that's a huge passion for us as well. And and so I came across a book that Katie had written called Developing Female Leaders and was so impressed by how insightful, practical, and helpful this book is. And as I'm reading, I'm thinking, we got to bring Katie out, and, and I want our whole church to learn from her and, and the insights that she has uh, developed in working with churches and organizations and how to raise up and empower women. And so today, uh, you are in for a treat. And so would you please give a warm, abundant life welcome to Katie Cole. Thank you all so much. So great to be here with you. Uh, Such an honor to be in the Northwest. And I heard we got the students in the house today. Glad you're here. This is great. I've just so enjoyed my time with you. Uh, Pastor Jeremy and the team have been wonderful hosts, and it's great to be with you today. Uh, I am excited to be here because I am actually a Northwest girl. I happen to live in Florida, but I am a Northwest girl. I grew up in Missoula, Montana, and uh, went to college in Tacoma where I had a really large number of Portland friends. I'm not sure why the percentage was that way. We came down here a lot on spring break and weekend trips. Uh, My husband and I both have uh, siblings that live here with their families, and so I get to see my nieces and nephews this week, which is wonderful. We've watched, you know, a few episodes of Portlandia, so we feel very connected with you guys. <laughs> feel like I'm one of you, so very excited to be here. Um, but it's particularly fun for me as a believer. I've been walking with the Lord um, my whole life, but really since I was a teenager, my youth group was a huge experience for me of just really giving my life to the Lord and fully surrendering and walking with him. And ever since then, when I move or travel, it's just always a joy to go and be in church with other believers and worship together, open God's word together. Isn't that an amazing thing that no matter where you go, yes, there are believers that are loving God and loving people and just, uh, it's an amazing, it's amazing thing to be a part of. So uh, together is actually kind of our theme today. Uh, we're going to uh, take a look at some scriptures. In fact, if you want to take out your Bibles or your apps and turn them on, we're going to be in John chapter 17. John chapter 17. Uh, when I moved from Montana, or actually Washington State, to South Florida, I had just graduated from college. I was a nursing student, and I was going to have my first big job in a hospital. And there was a new hospital opening up in South Florida, so I packed up my little Subaru station wagon, drove, took me about three weeks because I stopped and saw all these friends and families along the way. Uh, but when I got to South Florida, it was like a major culture shock. I don't know if any of you have ever been to South Florida. I, live, I am in West Palm Beach, which is a little 
north of Miami. Um, and there were many things that were very different uh, than growing up in the Northwest. Uh, first of all, there were a lot of retired people in Florida, like a lot. So the roads are a little dangerous. You can never get in at Applebee's, you know, around 4 or 4.30. The line is out the door. Uh, there's this whole phenomenon in Florida called uh, uh, island time. I think Jimmy Buffett is sort of responsible for it. Uh, no one really shows up on time. No one RSVPs. Apparently, if you wear a Hawaiian shirt, you can get away with anything. Uh, that was different. There are a lot of nationalities in Florida. We have very diverse diversity, is what we like to call it. And so it, I never was quite sure what language we were speaking, or I couldn't understand people's accents, and that was new to me. And so I, I just didn't know how to navigate all of that, and I was kind of ignorant to it, to be honest. Uh, but one of the biggest differences was how how we spent our time outdoors, how we recreated. So I'm from Montana. We camp, we hike, we build fires everywhere, inside the house, outside the house, in a campground, fires everywhere. Um, I love to fish. I love fresh water. Like in Montana, we have Glacier National Park just north of us. And so all of the water melts off the glaciers and comes down and it's like crisp and like icy cold. Uh, it's, you can see through it like a lake or a river. You can uh, see through it into the bottom. It's just so beautiful and so refreshing. Florida is like not like that at all. <laughs> Florida is hot all the time and very humid. The water is hot, all the water is hot. The ocean is warm, you turn on your faucet in your sink, it's warm because the ground is warm and nothing's cold anywhere. So it's just like the craziest thing. Um, we spend time outside, you kind of either golf or you go to the beach or you know the boat thing, that's kind of what you do. And the ocean is, like, ocean water is so different. It's even different than the Pacific Ocean because it's, like, super salty. It's kind of like bath water. You can't see through it because it's so cloudy. And there's, like, there's all these things that are in the ocean, like, swimmy things that, like, they go, they swim through you. There's, like, things that want to sting you. There's things to bite you, like seaweedy things that you get trapped in, and you can't see, so you don't know what's in your toes. It's very uncomfortable. And so... Uh, when I think of spending time outdoors, like my family and I were like, let's spend some time outdoors. Even though I've lived there for over 20 years, instantly in my mind, I get a picture like this. Ah. Oh. See, you don't even have to sigh because you guys live in this all the time. But if you didn't live here, this would be like, oh, a little mental vacation for you. Uh, I live in Florida, and so we don't have this stuff very much. But I have a son that was born and raised in Florida, and he loves the ocean. He's not sure what to do when you go swimming in a lake and you can see your own feet. Uh, he loves the heat. He really never has worn socks. You know, he uh, doesn't really get sunburned, even though he's got red hair and fair skin. He just never really has navigated all that. In fact, I have a picture of my family here, just to let you meet who I'm talking about. Uh, so this is my husband, Matt, uh, and my son, Ethan. Ethan turned 16 a couple weeks ago, so we have a driver in the house, which I am super excited about. Any other parent chauffeurs in the room? Oh my gosh, I got like 10 or 15 hours a week of my life back just by the driver's license. So, and he's a very wonderful driver, which is great. I worry about, you know, again, the old people. But other than that, uh, everything's going great. So um, as Ethan was growing up, I started to realize I don't have a freshwater kid. Like, I'm a freshwater person, and I always kind of imagine myself growing up, you know, taking my family camping. You don't camp in Florida. It's like 100 degrees out, and the bugs and the lizards are ginormous. <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm raising an ocean water kid. 
Like, how do you do that? I've, I never in my mind thought that would happen. And so I decided I was not going to be that, like, weird mom that sat up on the beach and watched her kids in the ocean and was like, oh, I don't want to be here. It's hot. It's sticky. I think that on the inside, but I've worked really hard not to have that on the outside. So instead, I was like, you know what? I am a Northwest girl. I know how to change my own tire. I know how to make my own campfire. I can conquer the ocean. So I did what any good mom would do. I got a three-point strategy together. The first step was to go to Costco. I went to Costco and I got like the beach chairs and the umbrella and they have these big buggies with giant wheels so that you can take it onto the beach and it really does make it nicer. A gallon of suntan lotion, I'm like, I'm gonna be fine. I got myself a surfer swimsuit because you'd be shocked when you hang out in the big waves of the crashing Atlanta Ocean in Florida. Things come out of swimsuits that shouldn't come out. So I wasn't gonna let that happen. Got my good swimsuit on. And then the thing that I was the most excited about because this just kind of tells you the kind of mom I am. Uh, it was the time of year um, on the Discovery Channel, so we all sat down, and for a week, we watched Shark Week together. <laughs> oh, yes. That actually tended up to be my fatal mistake. So I don't know what I was thinking Shark Week would be, but, you know, with like a five- or six-year-old boy, I was like, he's going to dig this, and I'm going to, like, love doing it with him. But what I found out is that in my mind, when I thought of swimming in the ocean, even though I was gearing up for it, what, in my mind, it looked like this. Oh, don't they look so peaceful? And it's like beautiful, and mom and dad are happy, and the kids, and the waves, and the thing. But what I learned from Shark Week, because the first night was about my town in Florida, it actually looks like this. That's literally what they showed. I'm not sure what I was thinking. I kind of thought Shark Week was going to be about like Hawaii and Bethany Hamilton or like the Pacific Rim with like 20-foot waves and sharks chomping at people. And I'm like, nope, this is where I live in Florida. This is what I swim with. So needless to say, when I go in the ocean still, it's a very uh, tension-filled experience to say the least. I'm there, I'm smiling, I'm having fun on the outside, and everyone else is having fun. Ethan's having a great time. I'm pretty sure all the ocean people, maybe there's some ocean people in here, you guys are all having a great time, but this freshwater girl is full of tension. I'm like, awkward. I feel very out of place. But more than anything, I just feel very vulnerable. Like, I don't know what's going to bite me. I don't know if something's going to take my kid out, and I won't know what to do about it. Give me a bear sighting over a shark attack any day of the week. That I know how to do. This dangerous thing, I don't know how to do. And I feel very exposed and very unsafe. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever, like, found yourself in a space that you thought was going to be great, but then kind of wasn't great, but then all of a sudden you just are, you're awkward? You feel sort of, like, out of place? You just are vulnerable and unsafe feeling? It's a horrible feeling, isn't it? I actually think um, it's an important feeling to pay attention to. And I think it's one of the things that Jesus wants to talk to us about in this scripture today. Because the amazing part is, is that somehow I find myself still in the ocean. Why do I go swimming? Why do I take on the shark-infested waters? It feels like I need a mom badge or something. It's not actually like that, except it's a few miles out. But it still feels like that to me. But I go to the ocean and I go swimming because of love. Because I love my kid. And I love my kid more than I uh, love my comfort. I love my kid more than I hate the tension that I feel. And I love my kid more than I love my fear. 
and I don't want to live with those limitations. And so that is what Jesus is talking to us about today in John 17. He's talking to us about overcoming what we fear and what we're uncomfortable with, overcoming the tension because of love. So let me set us up for us. This is towards the end of Jesus' life. Uh, he has been walking with the disciples for years now. It's actually the night that Jesus is betrayed by Judas and goes off um, and is arrested and taken to uh, the cross to die for us. This is the night that goes down. He's been talking to them. He's been walking them through a vineyard. He's been telling them about what it means to abide in me. Uh, later, he instructs them about what is going to happen. They go to the upper room. He has the last supper with them. He serves the first communion. He washes their feet, talks to them about servanthood. He explains to them what's going to happen. They're kind of confused. He comforts them. He loves these guys. And he's trying to help them get ready for what's about to go down. And then at the very end, the very last thing he does before Judas shows up and kind of goes crazy is that he stops and he prays. And it's a two-part prayer. What's different about this prayer, though, is that it's not like he's prayed before. Usually when Jesus prays, he goes off by himself. It's usually at night or really early in the morning. Goes off by himself to pray. He goes in solitude. He leaves the crowd. He oftentimes leaves the disciples. Sometimes he explains what he's doing in prayer. But for the most part, Jesus does most of his praying alone. But today he does it differently. Today he prays in front of the people out loud, his disciples, his followers. Uh, in fact, the scripture says that he looks up towards heaven and he prays out loud so that everyone can hear, which tells me that he's not only praying like the, the strength of heaven down on his own life and to his disciples for this big, tough moment, but he's doing it out loud because he's teaching his final lesson to his disciples. And the first part, is part of his prayer to his disciples is for them. He prays for his disciples and his followers who are with him right there. He reminds them of the last three years. He encourages to keep going. He tells them how much he loves them, and he reaffirms their calling. And then the last part of his prayer, the second part, the final thing we hear from Jesus, is that he prays for what's called the disciples yet to come. That's us. The disciples who will believe in the future. In Jesus' very last moment, he prays for us. He prays for you. You want to know what he prays? John chapter 17, verse 20. This is what he says. My prayer is not for them alone, meaning the disciples. I don't pray just for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 22, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I and them and you and me. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Circle that word unity or highlight it in your Bible. Don't you love that we get to write in our Bibles? I love that. Always write the good stuff down in your Bible. So circle the word unity. And then underline what Jesus says unity will do. That it will let the world know that God has sent him and that God loves them. And I look at that verse and I think, how does that work? How does Jesus praying for unity for all of us 
somehow let people know that God loves them and that he sent Jesus to them. That makes no sense to me. I mean, when I pray for something, I almost never pray for myself to have unity. I don't think I ever actually ever have. I pray for help. I pray for strength. I pray for wisdom. I pray for insight. I pray, God, get me out of this situation that I've gotten myself in. But I never pray for unity. And to be honest, if I were to think about how I would pray for more people to know about God's love and for more people to hear about Jesus, I wouldn't pray for unity. I would pray that we would have better churches. I pray that we would love people more. I pray that we would share our faith more. I pray that we would uh, help the poor. Those things might make people notice, but I don't think of praying for unity. So why does Jesus pray for that? Why does he pray for unity of all things? Why does he pray for togetherness? Have you ever heard of brackish water? Brackish water. In Florida, everybody knows about this. So brackish water is when fresh water from the mainland kind of comes down and mixes with ocean water uh, from the sea. And in the middle is this kind of in-between water. It's not really fresh water. It's not really seawater. It's uh, brackish water. Here's a picture of it. So you can see the ocean out here and the fresh water coming. And you can see all this kind of grayish, greenish color is brackish water. And the amazing thing about brackish water is that there are animals and plants who live there that can't live in either fresh water or salt water. They only can live in the mix of it. In Florida, we actually have, as the ocean comes down, we have little islands, and so it holds it together and actually creates its own new ecosystem right here of brackish water. And we have this endangered species called manatees, which are just like these big, they call them sea cows because they're just like big loaves in the ocean. They're giant. Anyway, they love brackish water. So now in my town, we have like a museum of uh, manatees that come and stay there, and they all hang out. So it's this brackish water. Now, what's so interesting is that when two ecosystems come together, like a freshwater ecosystem and a saltwater ecosystem, they actually more often than not choose to fight one another. Brackish water is an example of where they come together, but most of them, whether it's a prairie land into a mountain range, whether it's a rainforest into a desert land, when two ecosystems kind of collide, what they usually do is retreat. They usually start to have competition, so they separate. In fact, there's oftentimes a dead zone between two ecosystems where no life takes place because you have this thing over here and this thing over here and never the two shall meet. My family and I actually got to go see an area where they came together uh, like this brackish water. It's on the west coast of Florida called Sanibel Island. And what they call it, it's actually a rare occurrence when two ecosystems come together and actually rather than retreating, they actually embrace one another. It's called an ecotone, an ecotone. Eco standing for ecology, so the biology of it. And then tone is actually from the Greek word tonos, which means tension. Because when two ecosystems come together, it's awkward. Everything's out of place. There's vulnerabilities that they don't have in their own ecosystems. But when they come together, and rather than retreating from the tension, they embrace it, we actually see an ecological miracle. And that's what Sanibel Island was for us. We went there a couple summers ago. It sounds really fancy like I went on this research trip, but actually we just drove to the west coast of Florida and went to Sanibel Island and found out it's an ecotown. So we went there. So Sanibel Island has the greatest number of seashells like on the beaches of almost anywhere else in the world. Um, and we did this wave runner tour because I learned uh, that if you have a teenage son, Play-Doh and books no longer makes for a fun vacation. So we invested in a wave runner tour. It gets very expensive as they get older. A wave runner tour and we went bouncing around and we actually did this tour called 
um, the tour of the 10,000 islands. There's 10,000 tiny little islands all off the coast that kind of takes this brackish water and creates this extra ecotone. And oh my goodness, it was unbelievable. The number of birds we saw there, the different kind of plants that we saw there. There were dolphins swimming like with us on the wave runners. We went out and saw all these manatees. There were sea turtles. Uh, there were just all sorts of vegetation, plant life, animal life that you can't see anywhere else. It's a special place for special dynamics that can only happen because these two ecosystems crossed into the tension. It's very rare. In fact, the diversity that's there is some of the richest places that you will ever see. And there's only a handful of ecotones in the world. Um, it actually encapsulates my favorite definition of diversity, which is unity without tension. Unity without tension. See, when Jesus prayed for us to have unity, when he prayed for us to have togetherness, he knew that if we could lean into the tension of the things that are different between us, that we could just be people, not necessarily freshwater people and ocean people, but just people, that it would be so unique and so rare and so different that the world could not help but stand up and take notice and go, gosh, there's something miraculous happening there. Have you ever seen a miracle? Like when you see a miracle, even someone who doesn't even believe it God at all sees something miraculous. Like I think of when a baby is born. It is really hard to see a baby be born and not go, there's something bigger going on here, right? It's like a miracle. This life is brought into the world. How can I actually just think that somehow we did this all by ourselves? There's something bigger going on. That kind of miracle is what Jesus is praying for us to have, that we would come together and our love and our unity and our togetherness would be so incredibly rich, so amazingly diverse, so incredibly unified without tension that people would walk by and see it and be like, that is miraculous. How is it possible that those two people are friends? How is it possible that those folks are in business together? How is it possible that those people come together on a Sunday morning when they look so different and are so from such different places and experience life so differently, yet they come together and worship Jesus together? How is that possible? See, because unity and togetherness is rare. When I look at our world, I see a ton of tension between people, between groups, between families, between organizations, between churches, and tension gets us nowhere. I see a lot of separation, and separation creates scarcity and competition. We don't have any need. We live for the king of kings. We don't have any need to feel like we have to compete. He gives us everything we need. And when I look around our world, I see a lot of people retreating into their safe zones. They want to be with their freshwater friends or their ocean people. We retreat back instead of leaning in and asking curious questions and discovering new things and trying to understand rather than just being understood. Are you seeing what I'm seeing? Too much separation, too much retreat, too much competition. See, I think when Jesus looked at the lives we were going to have, the disciples yet to come, he knew the thing that would be the hardest for us and the most impactful to the world around us would be to have a love miracle, a unity miracle, a together miracle, a spiritual ecotone that would stand out from everything else around us. And in God's eyes, unity and togetherness is not just one thing. It's all the things. It's race, 
its gender, its socioeconomic level, its foodie preferences, it's your Enneagram number, it's whether you're gluten-free or not, it's all of those things. All of those things fall into it. And when I think of even in my own life, the things that trip me up from unity, the things I go, oh, I don't know, I don't know about that. I'm not sure, I'm not sure about that. That makes me feel awkward. Being with this person makes me feel out of place. If I were to be a part of that, I would feel very vulnerable. And how easy it is for us to retreat. But as Christ's followers, that's not what he calls us to do. He actually calls us to lean into the tension. To care about togetherness and unity more than we care about our comfort. We're motivated by love to be one as he and the Father are one. The last couple of years, I've actually been studying this uh, space of togetherness, particularly when it comes to men and women working together, leading together, serving together, particularly in church environments. And one of my uh, favorite uh, examples of this is in the New Testament. Now, I'll just call it like it is. There's been trouble between men and women since, you know, the apple and Adam and Eve. Lots of opportunity for separation and tension. Uh, but one of the reasons that Jesus came is so that we didn't have to live separated. Through his blood and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can actually lean in. And in the New Testament, we get to see where that starts to happen. So in Romans uh, chapter 16 in the New Testament, we find Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul, has been planting churches all around uh, the area. He's been moving around, planting churches. He's now in Corinth when he writes the book of Romans, uh, actually living in a little suburb called Sincrea. But there's trouble in the church in Rome, which he started a while ago. And the Roman church has grown a lot. They actually meet in a bunch of little house churches now. It's prolific, but they're having some trouble with the unity thing. They've got some tension going on. They're a little confused. They're not quite sure who should be in and out. And so they're having trouble, and Paul's kind of faced with a dilemma. Should I go back there and teach them all and reset them straight and be the leader that they're wanting me to be? Or do I keep doing the work I'm doing here in Corinth and going on to the new places God's called me? So he decides he's going to stay put, but instead he's going to write a letter. And so he writes this really long letter that we now know is the book of Romans, uh, and he needs to send it to Rome. It's a very uh, big job, actually, to take the letter to the Romans. It's not just like an email or, you know, Amazon Prime. Uh, someone actually has to, like, take the long journey. And so he looks out among the congregation, and he decides, who should take this letter for me? And this is where we meet Phoebe. Now, <laughs> this probably isn't actually what she looked like, but I can't help but think of her when I think of this name. This is probably more what Phoebe looked like. So Phoebe is at the church in Sancria. We don't know a lot about her, but we know that she is a very strong, very successful businesswoman. She is single. Or we're not sure if she's widowed or always been single, but most people think that she's probably always been single. She's so successful, in fact, that she actually has a really big home, and the church is meeting in her home. Uh, she's a benefactor and financially underwrites much of Paul's ministry and supports a lot of the other churches that he has planted. Uh, she's called a deacon and a ministry leader. Paul actually addresses her as his sister, which is uh, Paul's favorite metaphor for the New Testament church is that of a family. So if you look at how he talks about all his, uh, the guy leaders, he calls them brothers, and Phoebe he calls his sister. So he feels close to her and trusts her immensely. Now, this journey is not for the faint at heart. It's actually a very physically demanding journey. It's an expensive journey that she's now gonna pay for herself. In fact, here's a map to let you know. Uh, there is a chance that she took a water route, but more more than likely, she took the 
land route all the way to Rome. It probably took several weeks. She had to hire a whole caravan and security guards and everything else. It was a physically demanding trip for her. But what was most impressive about Phoebe is that Paul trusted her enough to actually carry the theology of the book of Romans. Because when you show up and read the letter from Paul, it's not just about handing it over to the leaders who are there in Rome. She's actually representing Paul. She reads the letter to the church, and then she spends the evening or the next two evenings or as long as it takes answering questions about what Paul meant. And then she goes to the next house church, and she reads the whole thing. And if you've read the book of Romans, it's not a short letter. There's a lot to it. And then she answers questions until everybody understands and everything's course corrected. Then she goes to the next church. It's a very big ministry. It's a very big responsibility. And Paul entrusts it to Phoebe. Now, the thing that I think is so amazing about this example is that Paul and Phoebe are from two completely different ecotones. Men and women didn't hang out together in Bible times very much. In fact, women were oftentimes looked at as second-class citizens or even property. And so Paul could have really easily hung out with his freshwater friends, right? The guys he's been doing ministry with, the people who really love him, the folks that have been mentoring with him for a long time. I would imagine that many of those guys were really interested in this leadership opportunity. But Paul doesn't just hang with the people he knows. He looks out and he sees the dead space between men and women. And he says, we're missing some unity. We're missing some togetherness in the church and we're gonna do something new. We're gonna do something that hasn't really been done in our culture yet because Jesus prayed that we would be one and we're not quite one yet. This still happens in opportunities for leadership today for women. So in, in business scenarios still today, women make up only 21% of high level leadership roles in the business and marketplace. In the church, it's even worse. In churches across America, women make up 61% of the congregation, but they make up only 10% of leadership roles. There's still some dead space that we haven't quite gotten right yet. There's still some areas of tension that we need to lean into and figure out how to overcome so that we can be more unified, so we can be unified the way Jesus was talking about us being unified. And so Paul decides he's gonna lean into the tension. Now just imagine this. You're leading the church. Everyone respects you but you're gonna dip your toe into this world that no one's really ever done before. I'm sure it wasn't applauded by everyone. I'm sure there were some questions. Maybe you've done something like that. You're like, this doesn't seem right. I'm gonna speak up about this. I'm gonna do something different. I'm gonna act in a way that's different than the norm. And you got some resistance and you got some criticism and people are wondering what in the world you're doing. Well, Paul doesn't let that stop him. He doesn't let the awkwardness or the tension or the disapproval keep him from leaning in to the opportunity that God's giving them. But then what's really miraculous is that Phoebe does the exact same thing. Because you can't have an ecotone with just one ecosystem trying. You gotta be matched by the other ecosystem. Has to meet you halfway and Phoebe does the exact same thing. And she's feeling just as awkward, just as out of place, just as vulnerable. Because she's about to step into something that a woman has not really done before. She's about to be one of the first. Have you ever been one of the first to do something? Has God ever called you to do something that no one else you really know has done or you don't really see anyone like you doing it? Maybe you're the first person in your family to follow Jesus. Maybe you're the first person of your friend group to get clean and sober. Maybe you're the first minority to take a leadership role in your workplace. Maybe you're the first one to reach out to an estranged family member. Maybe you're the first. I've had a few first experiences in my journey. 
And I walk into those spaces, and it, sometimes it catches me off guard. I kind of say yes to the opportunity, and then I'm like, oh, wait, do people like me not do this? And I get that little Sesame Street song in my mind, you know the one? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. And it kind of resounds, and I go, it feels like I don't belong here. In my early years, I really thought when I showed up to an opportunity and I was the only one that didn't fit in, that that was a sign God didn't want me there, and I would kind of step back. In fact, women do that all the time. It's easy to kind of take yourself out of leadership because when you show up, you're like, Is, do I belong here? Should I be doing this? Is this what it's supposed to be? There's actually research I talk about in the book how men and women apply for jobs differently. Uh, when men look at a job description and they read through it, whether it's a job description at work or maybe a volunteer role at a church, they look through it and if they feel good about 60% of what's on the job description, they'll apply for the job, they figure they'll get it, they're gonna do an awesome job. If they don't know what they're doing, they'll fake it till they make it, they'll Google it, something will come along, it'll work out great. When a woman looks at a job description, however, she measures herself totally differently. She says, unless I feel great about 100% of everything on this job description, I won't even apply for the job. Think about that. I won't even apply. There's a phenomenon we call it. We call it the sticky floor. You maybe have heard of the glass ceiling, kind of those um, unseen barriers that keep women from growing up in leadership roles. In the church, we call it the stained glass ceiling. <laughs> But oftentimes, when organizations remove the glass ceiling or start to break it down, women still don't advance. So we're like, why is that? And it's because they've got the sticky floor. It keeps their feet stuck to the ground, and they take themselves out of opportunities. They don't apply for a job. The door opens up, and they go, there's probably someone better for that. I don't know. I don't really think that's for me. I, I don't really know as much as they think they know. If they really knew what I didn't know, they probably wouldn't have offered me the job. They know what you know. Take the job. And that's what Phoebe does. She says, you know what? I'm not going to let the sticky floor hold me back. I'm not going to take myself out of an opportunity. I'm going to dig into my faith. I'm going to trust that if God gifted me with certain skills and ability and my leader opens a door for me, that I am going to step through and say yes. I'm going to lean into the tension. I'm going to be okay with being awkward. I'm going to feel out of place and just become okay with that. I'm going to be vulnerable but know that God is going to protect me. And so Paul says yes Phoebe says yes, and we see a miracle happen, a spiritual ecotone come together that shifts the New Testament church in multiple places and gives us what is arguably the most important theological text of the New Testament. That is what happens when we lean into the tension and make our own ecotone. I'm looking at this room here, and all of you online, and I'm wondering, who in here, who of you are a Paul? You've been given leadership, you've been given opportunity, you've been given resources. You have a lot to offer people. In fact, you have a lot of people who would love for you to offer them things. But you probably have some dead spaces in your life or in your leadership that there's room for unity. There's room for togetherness. And you hold the keys to offering those opportunities to someone you maybe wouldn't think about before. That might have some tension, there might be some criticism it might be risky to give this person the opportunity, but I'm just wondering, could God be inviting you to lean into the tension, to begin the workings of a spiritual ecotone that can't happen any other way? And maybe you're a Phoebe. Maybe you have gifts and abilities that you know might be stirring. Maybe there's an opportunity that someone has given you and you're wondering if you should take it. Maybe God's calling you up to something big right now and you're like, oh, I'm not sure God knows what he's talking about. 
I just want to encourage you, don't let the lies of the enemy keep you back. You have been called by the king. You are an anointed follower of Jesus. You have been gifted and called and anointed to do amazing works. When God opens a door, walk through and say yes and see the miracle that he wants to do with you. Don't hold yourself back. We don't have to grab for things. We don't have to bang things down for ourselves, but we can wait and when he opens the door, say yes to it. You can walk through with confidence and see something miraculous happening. Why does Jesus pray for unity for us? Us, this in this room. Why does he pray for togetherness? I think it's because he knows that we as humans prefer to swim in our favorite waters with the people that are like us or that we feel most comfortable with. We aren't that good at embracing tension on our own. We prefer the easy path of retreat. But I gotta tell you, I'm looking at where we're at and I don't think it's working for us. I don't think the world is standing up and taking notice of anything special happening. I look at our history around men and women and the past has been about patriarchy and I think we can all agree that has not served us well. But then I look online, I'm on Instagram, I go to Target and I see journals and mugs and t-shirts that really tell me that the future is female. And I'm looking at that and I'm like, I've read my Bible. I don't think that's true either. The past is male, the future is female. That's not it. Jesus isn't saying that. He's not saying the future is female. He's saying the future is together. All of us together, working together, young and old, male and female, different ethnicities, different socioeconomic levels, different parts of the country, different spiritual gifts, different abilities, different experiences. We're all supposed to come together and see something miraculous happen together. It's not about leaving people behind. It's about including more people in and moving forward together, right? Right? I think the amazing thing when I think about water is that it's all actually connected. Fresh water, ocean water. I actually got reminded of this when Ethan went through eighth grade biology class, but I did actually know the circle of water. But, you know, it's in the ocean. It gets evaporated. It goes over to the mountains. It rains down clean, fresh water. It turns into streams. It turns into rivers. The rivers go into the ocean, and it's all connected. I think sometimes when God looks down on us in our freshwater and ocean water spaces, And he thinks, gosh, the very thing I gave you to pull you together has actually caused you to be separate. I gave you water. Water is supposed to unite us, not separate us. So in our world, there are probably some big things that we can be accomplishing, and we should be accomplishing it. But I want to challenge all of us that we also have many small opportunities to see spiritual ecotones emerge. One of the best moments for me was this last spring when I had my birthday, and my son Ethan, out of his love for me, for my birthday, bought me tickets to the musical at the local high school theater. Now, Ethan does not prefer to swim with the high school musical folks. He's a uh, punk rock kind of drummer guy. But out of his love for me, for my birthday goes there with me, right? It was a mini spiritual ecotone, right? It was love between us. And so I get in the ocean, and he comes to musical theater, and we love one another. Because I don't wanna just hang out in freshwater by myself and watch my son in the ocean. And he doesn't wanna hang out in the ocean and just you know, write his mom every once in a while. We wanna experience both. I wanna be together in freshwater. I wanna be together in the ocean. I want us to be together. That's what love does, is it brings us together. I think the ultimate ecotone, of course, is when Jesus crossed the separation to come from heaven a perfect, beautiful place 
to a fallen, broken world. That's the ultimate spiritual ecotone, right? Leaning into the tension, overcoming the place because we couldn't meet him halfway. He had to come all the way. See, God didn't design us to live in separation. We're not supposed to be separated from him and we're not supposed to be separated from one other. And so church, I'm just saying, can we do better? Can we lean into our unity with the Lord and can we lean into our unity with one another for our sakes, but mostly because Jesus tells us that how is how a lost world is gonna know how much he loves them. It's gonna know how much he loves them and why he sent Jesus for them is if we lean into the tension out of our comfort zone and not live in separation because our future really is together. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much, Lord. Thank you that you love us so much that you would leave heaven, come through the tension and live here with us to redeem us, to heal us, to save us. God, help us to walk in our salvation. Help us to answer your prayer that we would be one as you and the Father is one. God, thank you that we don't have to figure it out on our own. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you give us the power of the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. So would you do that, God? Would you change our hearts? Would you bring to mind right now, who is that person? Who can we reach out to? Where is the tension that we're leaning back from? How can we lean into it? Would you give us strength? Would you give us your power? Would you give us your wisdom and insight, God, that we might be a together generation for the first time? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.